Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's program with the Commonwealth Club, coming to you virtually whenever you're seeing this. I'm Clara Jeffrey, editor of Mother Jones. This program is part of the Commonwealth Club's virtual series addressing the impacts of COVID-19 on our community and society at large. We'd like to thank the members, donors, and supporters for making today's program possible. It's so important to uh, support media and programs like this right now. We hope others will follow the example of those who have supported and help the club make it through these uncertain times. Today, I'm very excited to be speaking with Congressman Adam Schiff, chair of the House Intelligence Committee. Congressman Schiff, you are all aware, gained national recognition and prominence for his role in the Russia and Ukraine investigations and President Trump's subsequent impeachment. In the last few weeks, Congressman Schiff and some of his colleagues have proposed a 9-11-style bipartisan commission to investigate the government's response to COVID and to determine if it ignored key warning signs and to help oversee how the trillions of dollars that are being uh, allocated for stimulus are, in fact, being spent. Thank you, Congressman Schiff, for joining us today. First, how are you, your family, and your district doing? We're doing okay. Uh, you know, the family, knock on wood, uh, we're healthy. Uh, I keep an eye on, uh, from a distance, my 92-year-old father uh, who, to make sure he stays out of trouble and is doing his social distancing. Uh, but we're healthy. Um, in terms of the, the folks uh, within my district, uh, like everywhere else, are really struggling, uh, desperately concerned about uh, their health and the health of their families. Uh, the health of our economy and their businesses. I've had people describe how they put everything they could into building a wonderful business, uh, and now we're at risk seeing it uh, go away and for good. Uh, they've struggled through this uh, small business program uh, to try to access funds. Uh, others are struggling uh, just to uh, keep a roof over their head. Uh, so it's a enormously challenging time. Uh, nonetheless, I think there's a great uh, willingness to endure the hardship, uh, recognition that what we do right now will determine um, just how long this virus uh, is with us and how much suffering and death accompany the virus. So uh, I think my constituents are being very responsible uh, in staying home and being socially distant. Uh, and the healthcare workers in my district, like everywhere, are just doing heroic uh, service right now. And uh, I'm in awe of what they're doing and uh, so grateful to people working in grocery stores, delivering the mail, packages, everything. Uh, we're very lucky for a lot of courageous people right now. Congressman, at the, at the end of the impeachment trial, you posed a rhetorical question to the Senate. And you said you may be wondering how much damage the president can do over the next few months before re-election. And then you said a lot, a lot of damage. And I'm wondering what you were imagining then in what kinds of damage could be done and how that squares with what's happening right now. Well, I have to say those comments uh, really haunt me at this point. Uh, I don't think even though I uh, certainly could imagine and we had good reasons to um, to do so, all kinds of ills that the president would commit uh, in the next nine months in office, I don't think anyone anticipated that uh, we would very soon lose more lives than we did during the Vietnam War. 
uh, and in significant part due to the incompetence uh, and maladministration of this president. Uh, so I think we grossly underestimated, frankly, the damage that he could do over the next nine months. Um, I did uh, certainly contemplate this is a president that could either deliberately get us into a war or bungle his way into a war. That was probably a greater concern. Uh, then there was the daily damage he was doing to our country by sowing division with the country, uh, with animosities uh, among our people. Uh, but uh, I don't think I could have expected in my worst nightmare uh, that we would have a crisis so large uh, and uh, handled so poorly uh, at such a dramatic cost to the country. The the impeachment um, proceedings and then trial centered around the the accusation that President Trump essentially extorted the president of Ukraine um, and then covered it up. Um, how have we seen the I would like you to do us a favor now mentality of the president play out in this crisis? Well, probably the most uh, direct and uh, pernicious echo that we hear of what uh, the president was saying and doing uh, during the course of his Ukraine misconduct uh, when he was essentially uh, telling the leader of another country, look, you need to announce these investigations of the Bidens uh, and was withholding military aid from that country, a country at war with our adversary, uh, until he could get those announcements. Now, those announcements of those investigations into the Bidens were something that he wanted to trumpet on the campaign trail. Uh, and and so uh, flash forward to today, you have the specter of the president uh, at the White House basically saying, I don't want to call back governors. I don't want my vice president to call back governors who are not saying nice things about me. And of course, those that have been willing to say nice things about him, and of course, the governors are in a terrible position, we have seen the Trump campaign take those statements by governors and put them into campaign ads. So in very much the same way, uh, he has made it clear that states that play ball with him, that are willing to be nice and say nice things that he can use in campaign commercials, uh, well, he's going to take one view of and the others will take a very different view of. Uh, now, is this why we're seeing, for example, Florida, which has a Republican governor, key swing state, get everything it asks for in terms of ventilators or protective gear, while other states like New York, California, and elsewhere, Michigan, uh, have to really struggle. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the answer is we simply don't know and we can't have any confidence that this president or his administration are making those decisions on the basis of science, on the basis of need, on the basis of what's in the best interest of the American people, but uh, as we said during the trial, the one thing you can always count on Donald Trump for is he will do what's right for Donald Trump, uh, not what's right for the country. And uh, I think we, we see that not just in, in the potential uh, manipulation of aid, but in the uh, ability of the administration to reward friends and punish enemies in corporate America, uh, in the way... Uh, aid is being doled out. Uh, you know, we, we have a serious question, for example, about whether California, which uh, ranks second to last in access to small business funding, at least in the first tranche of funds, uh, is being penalized because it's a blue state, uh, whereas red states uh, are going to be rewarded. Uh, that has been the pattern of this administration, and it wouldn't surprise any of us if that was the pattern even during a pandemic. He also made threatening 
remarks yesterday about what could happen to states that have sanctuary cities in terms of funding. Can you elaborate a little bit on what he said? Yes. And uh, well, basically that uh, the suggestion, the threat that was implied was um, that relief funds, COVID relief funds, uh, were not going to go out or not in as uh, great an amount uh, or under certain circumstances unless uh, the, these states agreed to abandon their sanctuary cities policies. Uh, so basically, uh, he was going to force these states to abandon um, looking after the most vulnerable citizens, uh, immigrants and undocumented citizens, um, if they wanted to have full access to health uh, services, um, funding for protective gear, et cetera, um, or relief funds. Uh, now, this was not an isolated act, either in its sort of treacherous content, uh, this uh, I want you to do me a favor, though, kind of aspect. But it also followed on the heels of the president announcing um, that he was going to end immigration into the country. And, uh, you know, this is also very consistent with the president and the Trump administration, which is when they need to deflect public attention away from their mishandling, in this case, the, their their deadly mishandling of the pandemic, um, when they need to rile up their base, when they're losing support, even among their base, they need to go back to their xenophobic red meat uh, and attacking immigrants, both in the changes they want to make to immigration policy now, but also this threat to states with sanctuary cities are both of the like kind, that is, uh, extorting uh, or uh, attacking the most vulnerable states and populations um, in order to placate the base and further divide the country. You said a minute ago that it's, you know, it's always hard to tell if something is uh, of corrupt intent or just incompetence. Um, and it feels like this is particularly true at this moment. Um, do you, it, are you able to untangle those things? I, I'm particularly struck by the fact that in a way, President Trump would do himself the biggest favor politically had he handled this early and well and generously and mourn the dead and do the usual things that presidents of either party do when there's a catastrophe that hits the nation. So he's getting in his own way, it would seem, politically. Yes. Well, this has been the story of the Trump presidency, though, uh, and that is you can look at things objectively and say that's really not in the president's interest to do politically. Um, but he does it nonetheless because he thinks it's good for him personally. Now, he also thinks it's good for him politically. Um, but uh, it's part of the myopia of this extraordinary narcissism we see in this president that it always has to be about him. Uh, and so right now, for example, these daily press conferences, um, they're not in the national interest. It's certainly not in the national interest for Donald Trump to be out there uh, postulating that maybe people should inject bleach as a way of killing the virus or suggesting new treatments or pushing out untested treatments. Um, that is not at least uh, in the least bit in the national interest. It's not in his political interest either. Um, and only recently did it uh, occur to him, okay, maybe he is overstaying his welcome on people's TV screens. Maybe this is starting to do him damage. Um, but but the, the entire prism is not what's best for the country with this president. The entire prism is what's best for him. And I suspect even if these continued press conferences hurt him, 
he will continue to do it because personally, that's what he wants to do. Uh, he cannot turn down something that generates ratings. He cannot have the conversation in the nation be about something other than him. Uh, and so I will be astonished uh, if we see a, a profound departure from what he's doing, even as much as it's not in the country's interest. And I think viewed objectively, it's not in his interest either. Do you think that's in part because his aides and his children are unable or unwilling to actually tell him the truth? Or are they living in a bubble of their own creation as well? Well, I, I think it's a combination of things. Uh, you know, one of the other points we made during the trial is that you're not going to change the president's character or more accurately, lack of character. You're not going to be able to constrain him. Uh, he is who he is. And, uh, and so nothing is going to change about this president's conduct. Uh, for as long as he's in office, he is going to be as destructive uh, and I think uh, perniciously self-centered uh, as he is. Uh, that's just not going to change. Now, in terms of his family members, uh, I think Jared Kushner was asked uh, within the last 24 hours about this grim milestone we are crossing where more people are dying of the virus and have died of the virus than died during Vietnam. And his answer was, we've made really good decisions. We're doing a really good job. Um, he made a comment in his last uh, press conference at the White House, um, which was equally um, revealing in terms of the, this whole family's blind spot. Uh, when he made the observation uh, in trying to criticize governors in various states that, well, this just shows why it's important for voters to think about competence when they're voting to elect someone. Um, you know, it's a bit like when uh, Don Jr. Uh, tries to attack uh, the Bidens for using the Biden family name. Um, there is just this uh, lack of self-awareness of this family, which takes your breath away. Uh, but in any event, they can't control him. They're not going to control him. He is who he is. The damage goes on. Uh, and, I, you know, I think the most that we can do in Congress is try to mitigate and limit the damage, try to do vigorous oversight, try to insist on accountability. We need to do that in, in real time. Uh, but it will also be very important uh, in terms of the commission you mentioned at the outset that when this is behind us, that we have a truly objective, uh, nonpartisan whole of government review of what went wrong, uh, how to protect the country better in the future, in the same way we did after 9-11. I want to come back to the commission in a minute, but um, I just want to stay on this, this uh, or something that you just said reminded me that the president's come out in the last few days reporting in various newspapers that the president's daily briefings and other forums in which he receives intelligence um, information did mention the threat of COVID, you know, early to mid-January and kept persisting in being included in those briefings. Now, I know he doesn't read them all, and sometimes he doesn't even attend a digest of them. Um, but from your perspective, because you too were busy with impeachment at that time, and yet um, on the Intelligence Committee, were, were was Congress aware of the risks that this posed? Well, you know, Congress was doing a number of things before this pandemic to prepare for a potential pandemic, uh, just as indeed the last administration was doing. And I think part of the reason we're in the situation we are now is that uh, Trump, uh, Donald Trump, uh, disbanded the pandemic response unit uh, in the White House and the National Security Council that serves as a tripwire for just this kind of danger to the country. In the Intelligence Committee, 
for the last three years, we have been uh, including in our Intelligence Authorization Act, our yearly work product, um, a provision requiring the intelligence community to report to us on its posture uh, in dealing with this threat, how it's resourced to deal with this threat, what more needs to be done to deal with this threat. Now, that bill we would get passed in the House, frankly, on a bipartisan basis, but the Senate, because of its dysfunction, could never get an intel bill passed until last year. So late last year, that provision finally became law. Uh, it wasn't for lack of trying in terms of our committee, um, but it became law too late uh, to really help Congress assess how the intelligence community was postured uh, for this pandemic. But nonetheless, we did get briefings uh, from the intelligence community. Um, we did hold a hearing on it. Uh, I think we held a hearing on it uh, the, the very day verdicts were coming back in the trial. Um, or We had a, actually a housewide uh, hearing that day, and we had a committee hearing within a week of that. Uh, so we were getting briefed. Now, I think it's too early to say whether the community um, did a good job or a poor job in terms of its uh, analysis uh, and reporting on what it was seeing in China. Uh, we are doing a deep dive on that issue right now. We are going through all of our holdings. What did they brief us in person? What did they brief us in writing? What were they seeing? Was there Were there conf conflicting uh, uh, inputs? Um, we don't know yet uh, what the administration was being briefed, what the president was seeing in his, his daily briefs. But we can at this point look at what we were receiving uh, and, you know, part of what our focus is, is determining, okay, what did we see? When did we see it? Um, was the intelligence community well integrated with the health community, the CDC, NIH, for example? That's not something that is ordinarily um, viewed as central to an intelligence community responsibility. Uh, so we're, we're asking the big questions about uh, whether there needs to be a, a really a refocusing, a restructuring uh, against these giant threats that, frankly, I think loomed um, lesser on the landscape than, for, for example, terrorism or the threat posed by nation state actors like Iran. Um, and one of the things that we want to come out of our committee and we would like to see come out of this commission report is an analysis of our whole of government posture vis-a-vis -vis this threat, what needs to be done to better protect the country in the future. So those are all the things that we're studying now. Do you feel confident that you are getting forthright um, briefings from the intelligence community, given that uh, President Trump retaliated against those who felt compelled or in some cases were compelled to appear before your committee and, and Congress as a whole? Well, you know, it grieves me to say that the answer is no, that there has been a tremendous politicization of the intelligence community under Donald Trump. Um, it has really reached its pinnacle uh, with the appointment of Rick Grinnell as the top intel official in the country, someone who has virtually no intelligence experience. Um, he was essentially a Twitter troll uh, who, before he became an ambassador uh, in the Trump administration. He uh, did what you do to get a, a high appointment in the Trump administration. You go on Fox, uh, you go on social media, and you make the most incendiary uh, attacks on the president's opponents and say the most uh, um, exaggerated claims of greatness on the on behalf of the president, and that gets you appointed. Uh, and he's been, you know, uh, in the way incompetence often rises to the very top, able to rise to the top of the intelligence community now. Uh, 
And we've seen, I think, a very dramatic change in the quality of what we can count on in terms of reporting on issues like election interference. What are foreign powers like Russia doing to try to interfere in the next election? The pandemic issue, frankly, looms now far larger. Can we count on an Intel community led by someone whose only qualification is being a loyal partisan of the president to be revealing um, the full uh, analysis of the intelligence community on this threat and when it identified it and how it identified it and how it made Congress and the administration aware of it, um, I, you know, I, I just don't have great confidence, sadly. But we're going to do the very best oversight that we can. We're going to use the levers that we have, including our budgetary power, to insist on answers. And at the end of the day, much as with Ukraine, we will find out the truth. Um, but uh, the the firing of the last uh, director, Director McGuire, the firing of the Inspector General of the Intelligence Community, the firing of heads of the National Counterterrorism Center, the replacement of some of these uh, people, um, the threats against other inspectors general, all of this is designed to have a chilling effect on what uh, what the intelligence com community is willing to say um, to the Congress, uh, is willing to say to the public in open hearings. Uh, and that's really a grave danger to the country. I think it came as a as a surprise to most people that uh, inspectors general who are supposed to be this firewall um, against intergovernmental corruption or malfeasance of other sorts could be so easily dismissed by the very people that they are reporting on. Um, is that something that happened before? Do, do, are there remnants of this in the Nixon era or other eras? And what could Congress do, presuming there's a change in leadership in the Senate um, to fortify those those rules and laws? It's a really good question. And, uh, you know, first of all, the inspector general system, which has been really integral to uh, rooting out waste, fraud and abuse in government and is a great success record, um, is a post Watergate reform. That's a system that was set up in the wake of Watergate uh, to try to make sure that there were independent watchdogs. But like so many of the post-Watergate reforms, they've been obliterated by this president. The independence of the Justice Department, for example, from White House interference in particular cases was a post-Watergate norm um, that has been now completely uh, obliterated when you see the president weighing in on the sentencing of Roger Stone, for example. You see the Attorney General of the United States doing the president's uh, uh, handiwork uh, in the dark uh, by intervening either in the case of Mike Flynn or Roger Stone uh, or um, uh, establishing effectively political investigations, potentially even political prosecutions, uh, as you see with the attorney generals um, discrediting statements against his own inspector general of the Justice Department that found that the Russian investigation was properly begun. It was properly predicated and yes, there were problems with the Carter Page FISA application, but the investigation itself was properly initiated and had nothing to do uh, with Christopher Steele's dossier. Um, the attorney general attacking his own inspector general shows a profound breakdown in that uh, set of post-Watergate norms and reforms. Uh, in the intelligence bill that we're drafting now, we are going to have a provision that provides that you cannot fire an inspector general except for 
good cause. Uh, we're going to also have requirements that if you do fire an inspector general, Congress needs to be informed of what they were working on when they were fired. Uh, we are trying to find out from the office of the director right now, uh, what was Michael Atkinson working on when he was fired by the president? Um, the law says that when you fire inspector general, this is existing law, um, you have to give 30 days notice to the Congress. Well, the president uh, did an end run around that by firing the inspector general and uh, in that 30-day period, putting that inspector general on immediate administrative leave so that they couldn't fulfill that last 30 days. Now, that 30 days might have given uh, the opportunity for the inspector general to make sure that investigations that were ongoing were not precipitously closed or swept under the rug or made to disappear. Uh, so we are going to be putting in statute um, uh, protections for the inspector generals going forward, things that we didn't think were going to be necessary because we thought presidents would, would never do what this president is doing. Uh, indeed, uh, we're working in our committee uh, with other committees on a whole package of what we are calling our own post-Watergate reforms, things that will be necessary when this president is gone to make sure that our democratic norms and institutions are codified, our protections are codified, uh, so that they can never be assaulted the way that this president has. Have you found any bipartisan support for such line of thinking thus far? You know, I, I have always felt, and, and I've been saying this for the last couple of years as we've been working on these post-Watergate reforms, that given the slave-like uh, devotion of particularly House Republicans, uh, Kevin McCarthy doesn't cross the street without asking Donald Trump. Um, that kind of sycophantic, uh, uh, slavish devotion to the president isn't going to admit of independent reforms. Any kind of uh, safeguards that, like we're talking about would be viewed as an implicit criticism of the president, and they simply lack the courage to do it. However, when this president is gone, uh, I fully expect there will be bipartisan support for these reforms because the Republicans, like the Democrats, recognize just what kind of catastrophic damage this president is doing. They just don't have the courage to say or do, do anything about it while he has a, a such a grip on the base of the Republican Party. But I think that will change. And, you know, one encouraging sign on the idea of a 9-11 commission, um, I've introduced a bill to accomplish that. Um, Republicans in the House have also introduced legislation to establish a commission very much like uh, what my bill would do. Um, and so I think it's encouraging that even if it's not in the same bill, there is support for the same concept. Uh, ultimately, though, what's going to make that happen is not the uh, bipartisan or lack of bipartisan support in the Congress, but rather what happened with the 9-11 Commission. And that, too, had been opposed at the time by the Republicans. It was opposed by the then Bush administration, which thought it would get too much of the blame for 9-11. Um, what made that a force to be reckoned with, something that could not be denied, was the victims who came together uh, and became a very potent force that demanded answers and demanded reforms to better protect the country in the future. They made that legislation happen. They made the commission uh, operate in an effective nonpartisan way. They made the Congress adopt the recommendations of the commission. And I fully suspect that that's what's going to happen here. It will take the victims of this virus, uh, the brave, uh, courageous healthcare workers who've been on the front lines of this, uh, and many others to provide the critical mass necessary to insist on that kind of accountability.
I mean, I remember well how 9-11 widows and other survivors, other family members did bind together. And it was a sort of unique situation because in the people who were killed in the trade center and so forth, you know, a lot of high finance types, um, whatever their relative power was, but, but the wall street community, the business community was, was engaged. And then you had the survivors of firefighters and police officers. Um, and of course there were victims in the Pentagon and, and on the plane that went down in Pennsylvania. But, um, do you think, as we look across the landscape, do you think survivors who are Trump supporters, even if they lost family members, will take part in in an effort towards accountability with with people across a partisan and, and to some extent regional and racial and other divides? I do think that look, this this virus is not going to discriminate on the basis of Trump supporters or Trump opponents. It's going to kill lots of both. Um, And I think that anyone who's been victimized by this, uh, and you're going to be hard-pressed pretty soon to find a family that doesn't know someone that lost their life from this virus, uh, they're going to want answers on behalf of their loved ones uh, that transcend politics. Uh, Now, the, the commission legislation that I introduced wouldn't have the commission begin its work until early next year. Um, now, it's obviously my hope that uh, early next year we have a completely different president. But uh, but I have the start date of this commission begin next year so that uh, it wouldn't be a political issue uh, in November. Um, if you try to do this kind of commission work now, uh, pre-election, uh, it might be nearly impossible. But I think when the election is behind us, uh, when we have hopefully turned the corner on the worst of the virus, uh, and we can begin to look with some objectivity, uh, then I, I think that the time is right. Uh, and I think we'll have the critical mass necessary to do the work the way it really should be done. We should have epidemiologists and scientists and healthcare experts, experts in governance, um, a, a broad cross-section of nonpartisan people participate in the work of this commission. Uh, and and with with the most important object being how do we protect the country in the future? Because this will not be the last pandemic, but we can make it the last pandemic that is this costly to human life and to our economy. So that is a a deeper dive, further out form of accountability. What kind of accountability can Congress muster now under these circumstances? You and I were talking a little bit about the intelligence committee work is particularly challenging because of all the security protocols that aren't necessarily easily overcome. But, but, um, the oversight committee, what, what can it do and, and frankly not do in the immediate future? Well, there, I think are two kinds of oversight going on, uh, in Congress, uh, that are going to be very important, uh, in real time. The commission is an after the fact review, but real time oversight is also vitally important. The select committee that we voted on and established last week uh, will be uh, a bipartisan select committee. Uh, It will be predominantly focused on the money, uh, on the economic issues, on all the problems that we've seen identified in the small business program, for example, where you have very large businesses taking advantage of a program meant for small businesses 
um, where uh, you have small business customers of large banks going to the back of the line because the banks are giving playing favorites among their customers and rewarding the most lucrative. Uh, those were obviously flaws in the implementation of this program. Um, and so we need to have real-time oversight to make sure that money reaches those businesses it's intended for. Um, you know, likewise, uh, you know, I'm, I'm hearing about from uh, people in my district that there are stimulus checks going out to people who are deceased um, because it's on the basis simply of who filed a tax return last year, even though they may have subsequently passed. So it's very important um, in any number of respects to have real-time oversight of the money. Uh, obviously, we're deeply concerned with this $500 billion fund for industry, uh, given the president's predilection for rewarding friends and punishing enemies, and the fact that he fired the inspector general who was going to head the oversight panel overlooking those expenditures. Uh, so, um, you know, one of the things that is a very much like character uh, that, that only highlights the need for that kind of oversight by that select committee, as you may have seen within the last two weeks, there's an investigation going on of the awarding of a $10 billion contract for cloud computing to a competitor of Amazon. Um, well, Amazon is rightly concerned that that contract went to a competitor uh, when there was a lot of expectation that Amazon was the best position to get that contract because the president wanted to punish Jeff Bezos, their CEO, who also is the publisher of the Washington Post. Uh, and we have seen the president in intervene with the Postal Service to try to raise postal rates to punish Amazon, to punish Jeff Bezos, to punish the Washington Post. So this is, you know, certainly consistent with the president's abuse of power. Uh, so uh, those kind of issues need to be looked at overseas in real time. There's a whole host of other issues, though, the lack of PPE, um, the lack of ventilators, the lack of testing, why there's no national testing strategy. And each of the congressional committees um, is doing oversight within areas of their jurisdiction. So in, in my committee, in the Intel committee, we're looking at how is the IC, the intelligence community, postured to deal with this pandemic threat? What did they see? When did they see it? What were they reporting? What were they making of it? What did China know? What was China saying? How are other nations exploiting this? You know, Russia um, in the last presidential election in order to help Donald Trump uh, seized on different fissures in our society to try to manipulate public opinion. You know, I have no doubt they will do exactly the same thing on the great cleavage of the 2020 election, which will be the pandemic. Uh, this cleavage we already see growing up between the protesters the president has been egging on about reopening uh, and others, particularly governors who are saying that's dangerous for the people, the citizens of my state. Uh, so we're looking at that constellation of oversight issues in my committee. Uh, each of the committees, though, will need to do real-time oversight in their areas of jurisdiction. Forgive me for asking, but how how can they do that right now when it's, uh, you were just mentioning it was, um, you've been sort of told not to meet in, in at least larger groups, um, and there's no proxy vote uh, uh, provision yet. There's... Are, P, are you able to hold hearings? Maybe not intelligence hearings, but you know, is is the committee that Jim Clyburn is is heading up? Will that be able to hold hearings virtually? I think that it will. We're working out the capability of doing virtual hearings. 
Uh, I did a virtual briefing uh, in the Intel Committee uh, just this week. Uh, now, we had called it a briefing because we're not authorized yet to do virtual hearings, but it was just like a virtual hearing uh, in the sense that we had two top Intel, former Intel officials uh, testify before the committee or brief the committee. Uh, we recognized the members in, in the video conference to ask questions. So it, it looked very much like a regular hearing except done uh, at a distance. Now, uh, I won't uh, sugarcoat it, though. It's very difficult at a distance to do um, meaningful oversight when you're dealing with bodies that don't particularly want to share the answers. Um, you know, the, the briefing we just had were people willing to come forward, willing to share their knowledge. Uh, and there's a lot that could be done very usefully that way and a lot that can be done on the basis of unclassified information. But um, much of what we will need to know in the Intel Committee will be classified, uh, and therefore we cannot do it at a distance. Uh, even uh, we, we certainly don't have the secure video capability among all of our members around the country right now to be able to conduct such a hearing. So we will need to come back and do it physically, and we'll figure out how to do that in a socially distanced and responsible way. Uh, in the meantime, though, we are doing the kind of oversight that we can by um, requesting, requiring information uh, by teleconference, uh, by using the budget uh, where, where necessary to um, compel answers. Um, uh, you know, one of the powers that Congress has is you don't answer my questions, okay, you don't get your budget. Uh, and so there are levers for us to get answers uh, in writing, answers over the phone, answers by other means that we can go into the skip and review, even if we can't do it in person. Um, those limitations, many of them are less of an issue for other committees. So, for example, an oversight committee looking at the problem with protective gear. Um, you know, they did a bipartisan briefing uh, where administration officials acknowledged um, that there were shortages of protective gear, that there are shortages of tests, that there are shortages in reagents, that there are shortages in swabs, basically refuted all the false happy talk uh, that we get at these White House briefings from the president almost every day. So that's important oversight. Um, now, it, it's uh, less visible to the, to the public, which is a problem, because a very important point of the oversight is getting good information out to the country and when the president is propagating false information, when he's saying that there is abundant testing that everyone can get tested when they can't, when he's saying that there's no problem with hospitals getting uh, protective gear when they can't, uh, that's an issue. When the president castigates the inspector general of the Health and Human Services Agency for reporting back that hospitals around the country are telling her that they can't get the gear they need, uh, it's important that the public be properly informed. So. Um, it's imperfect, to say the least. It's going to continue to get better as we find workarounds. Uh, and we're going to just have to uh, uh, identify a way to do it in person uh, as soon as possible, because there are some elements of oversight we just can't do any other way. Do you think that remote and or proxy voting will be coming down the pike soon? And um, frankly, when you think about it, it's kind of amazing that there wasn't a provision for this in the Cold War, um, or just because of travel time? Yes. Well, first of all, yes, I do think we will be developing the capability to do remote voting. 
I think it'll begin by proxy voting in which um, you're authorized, uh, you authorize a particular member on a particular vote to vote in a particular way. Uh, so it won't be proxy voting in the sense of I'm going to give this person my proxy, they can vote however they want, and they can carry around the proxies of a dozen people, but rather very specific, very limited. Then I think we will develop the capability for remote voting, depending on how long this persists. Um, and I think that's going to be very important. And I think it's doable, uh, both constitutionally and technologically. Um, you know, we do have to look at some of the constitutional, uh, issues in that the constitution requires that we have a quorum for certain work of the house. Uh, and the constitution doesn't specify, um, that you can do that remote. What a quorum means, right? right. <laughs> so, uh, you know, but but I think that uh, as uh, one of the justices uh, uh, said so eloquently, the Constitution is not a suicide pact, um, and it needs to be interpreted in a way to ensure the survivability of the republic. Uh, and if remote voting is necessary during a pandemic, I am confident nothing in the Constitution says otherwise. Um, you know, there in terms of the Cold War, you know, it may interest uh, your your the audience, uh, the viewers today, to know that. There have been members for years working on a related issue, which is the survival of government issue. Um, so if, for example, one of the planes on 9-11 had successfully hit the Capitol uh, and killed a substantial number of members such that a quorum wasn't present of any kind, virtually right. in person, whatnot, how do you continue government? Uh, and, you know, a number of the members of Brian Baird of Washington State, a former member, he worked for that for years on that. Uh, the Congress, I think, you know, probably to its discredit, never followed through with that, uh, perhaps didn't want to contemplate its own demise that way. Uh, but uh, this is a new impetus for us to think and plan and put in place procedures uh, for whatever exigency may face the nation. I mean, Congress needs to watch more action adventure movies, I think, more espionage movies. There's a whole series of movies about just this. As someone who literally represents Hollywood, um, I couldn't agree with you more. <laughs> Nicely done. Um, uh, you, uh, One thing that came up when you talked to my colleague, David Korn, a week or so ago during the impeachment um, hearings was that you were shocked that it was quite obvious that when you started um, making your arguments to the Senate, that they hadn't watched the House hearings and not just hadn't watched the full of them, but had seemed to have it all kind of mediated through Fox. Um, do you feel that that's going on with this crisis? Well, I don't know that that's going on uh, for the members of Congress through this crisis because they're hearing from their constituents also. And so uh, even if uh, on Fox uh, they continue to push out misinformation, they do get an earload, I'm sure, right now from their constituents who are worried about their health, who can't access loans through the small business program, who feel they're getting passed over by favored banking customers uh, so uh, I think there is uh, some ground truth that they're getting an earful of, and, and they should. Um, but uh, it was, I think, um, a, a refreshing surprise uh, in some respects that um, the senators who initially, I think, uh, may have been amazed that I didn't come into the Senate uh, wearing horns um, because they only knew me through Fox, uh, some of the Republican senators, um, uh, you know, it, it was encouraging that by the end of the trial, 
so many of them were acknowledging the truth, even if they couldn't bring themselves uh, and muster the courage to convict the president, they were acknowledging publicly that he was guilty of what he was charged with. Um, that was at least progress on the House because House Republicans have become such a cult of the president uh, that they're not even capable of acknowledging the facts uh, staring them in the face. Um, but, uh, uh, I, you know, we did have to um, operate from the premise, which uh, turned out to be all too accurate, that uh, the senators were really not watching the hearings in the House. They were getting the top line from Fox, which was completely misleading. Uh, and so you could see at times the astonishment when we would put on the case and we would play testimony from the House hearings and we would show the documents, um, the almost surprise with just how powerful the case was. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was typified by uh, something Lamar Alexander said towards the end of the trial when trying to justify the unjustifiable, and that is why he was voting not to hear from witnesses uh, his response was effectively, you know, the House has already proved its case 15 ways. Do we really need them to prove it 16 ways? Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, those acknowledgments, at least of the truth, um, I, I think were a, an improvement on the kind of gaslighting going on uh, within the administration from the president every day, uh, from people like Devin Nunes and Jim Jordan and John Ratcliffe and others in the House. Um, it was at least refreshing to hear uh, any number of Republican senators acknowledge that, yes, truth is still truth. Uh, facts still do matter, uh, even if they don't have the courage to act on them. Now, have you seen any uh, conciliatory movement within the California delegation when it comes to the pandemic? I mean, you know, you mentioned Kevin McCarthy earlier as extremely partisan. Devin Nunes is in the California delegation. Do the two of them and you and Barbara Lee and Maxine Waters ever like come to any uh, agreement about what needs to proceed in terms of representing the state of California? Well, it, you know, candidly, as long as I've known Kevin McCarthy, he has been the same. And that is a purely 100 percent political animal. Um, and uh, truth matters as little to him as it does to Donald Trump. Uh, and that's that's a great tragedy because he's the leader of their party in the House. Devin Nunes, on the other hand, he and I had a very good relationship in the pre-Trump era. Uh, we worked together very well. Uh, we produced Intel authorization bills every year. He was really a non-ideological, John Boehner kind of a country club Republican. Um, I think, though, that when the um, midnight run uh, interlude blew up on him, when uh, in the wake of James Comey's testimony very early in the Russia investigation, uh, he got into an Uber in the middle of the night and went to an undisclosed location and said that he discovered classified information that he had to share with the White House uh, and had a press conference about it. And it was revealed that he'd gotten that information actually from the White House. The place he'd gone to in the middle of the night was the White House. Uh, and he was forced to step down from being chair of the committee. I think that was such a catalytic experience for him, such a traumatic experience for him, that he decided that he was going to be all in uh, with the president and has been ever since. And it's been really down the rabbit hole uh, in a, I think, an irretrievable fashion. Um, but, uh, you know, there, there remain uh, good people within the GOP in Congress, um, 
I, I do think, though, that even the uh, otherwise normal, rational members of the GOP, um, history will be very unkind to them because they lack the courage to stand up to this deeply unethical president when the country needed them to. Um, and they'll have to answer for that. Uh, and I, I will say it's been one of the biggest disappointments I've had of the Trump administration. And that is I had a much higher view of my Republican colleagues, uh, of their commitment to their own ideals, of their commitment to the Constitution. Um, they don't represent the Republican Party anymore. They represent the cult of personality of the president. Uh, and uh, so I, I do think when the president is gone, um, I have to hope that they will return to being Republican once again. Um, and that we can find common ground. But uh, in the meantime, um, we focus on what we can get done, uh, even through the worst of the Russian investigation, the most difficult parts of the Ukraine investigation. Um, the uh, Intel Committee on a bipartisan basis, year after year, produced our annual authorization bill, which set out all the budget, all the new privacy protections, all the civil liberties reforms, we came to agreement on that. That's a very controversial topic. And nonetheless, we got our work done. We'll continue to get our work done, uh, even where there are these profound differences about what the president is doing to the country. COVID, as we, we've all been made um, acutely aware, has taken every inequity in our society and magnified it and increased it. I'm wondering what you think are the most likely uh, changes, perhaps even before a change of administration, if, if that happens, to occur, to occur that would um, help mitigate some of those? Do you think that there's a chance that some kind of sick leave could be a universal requirement? Is there a chance the Republicans would back off at least trying to take down Obamacare? Um, what, what of any of these um, old fights, frankly, may have a chance of being viewed in a new way by both members of Congress and more conservative constituents? You know, I'm really glad that you asked that question because uh, I think when we look at what this pandemic is revealing about American society, uh, it is exposing in a whole new graphic, um, undeniable and deadly way uh, just how uh, many injustices, inequities, um, uh, and disparities there are uh, in our system of government, in our society at large, that need to be remedied. Uh, and there's an urgency right now. When you look at the mortality rate of African-Americans um, from the COVID virus, it's just staggering, um, the death toll. And of course, there are a lot of reasons uh, for this uh, having to do with access to health care, I have no doubt that when we do the um, uh, postmortem on the financial recovery that uh, minority uh, institutions, businesses uh, will have persistent difficulties in accessing capital through the small business program uh, and in the same way that the, there have been persistent difficulties with access to capital generally. So in, in every sphere of American life, this pandemic is making life more difficult uh, and indeed even ending life uh, among those communities that are most at risk. And we have to look at this 
uh, crisis um, through the prism of how do we build back better? How do we build back a country better than what we found when the pandemic hit uh, that addresses um, the lack of health care among so many, that addresses uh, no, the, the lack of access to, to parental leave, um, uh, lack of access to capital, um, any number of uh, problems facing America, the yawning gap between rich and poor, the, the degree to which the wealth of the last quarter century has gone to a handful of families in the country and just what poor economics that is, what poor uh, morality that is. So um, I really do think that our uh, horizon has to be broadened by this tragedy uh, to build the country back better. Uh, you know, one thing I will say about what we ought to do right now, and this is something I've been advocating for the last two months uh, without success, but it's really starting to gain traction thanks to the work of one of my colleagues, uh, Pramila Jayapal. Uh, and that is, you know, a couple months ago in discussing the crisis with friends in Europe, I was struck at the approach that European countries were taking, that Britain and Germany and France and Norway and Sweden and Denmark, but also Asian countries like Singapore, where the, the government was guaranteeing payroll for businesses, large and small. Um, that seemed to me much more equitable, much more efficient. Um, you didn't need a separate pro program for small business and one for large industry. You didn't need to overwhelm unemployment compensation you didn't need to have so many people unemployed. Uh, and when this virus does pass, uh, then who have to now go and find employment uh, because people got to retain the jobs they had, even if they couldn't perform the work right now. Uh, that kind of a payroll guarantee is, I think, the best approach. And Do you think it's via payroll or is it a UBI, a universal basic income kind of started up now? Let's Let's become Alaska. Uh, you know, those are two, I think, good models for us to explore. I, I've been particularly attracted to the payroll model um, because it, it has the effect of preserving employment, um, preserving uh, that connection. Um, and, you you know, they're not also mutually exclusive. The, you know, the stimulus checks are a form of universal basic income if you made them monthly. Uh, and... Uh, and so, uh, but but you know, I particularly um, think that the payroll guarantee is the right approach. You know, Germany uh, has maintained, um, with only a slight increase in unemployment, their pre-pandemic employment. America's made a choice to have millions and millions of its people, a huge percentage not seen since the Great Depression, now go on its unemployment rolls. That's not good for America. Uh, so I really think this is the right approach and I'm going to continue to strongly advocate for it. One of our listeners, I've been folding in other questions, but one uh, wants to know, will Congress save the post office? We have to save the post office. Uh, and, and this is also a very good question that has more than one uh, aspect to it. Uh, first of all, millions of good middle-class jobs in the post office, um, including a lot of veterans who serve uh, in the postal service. A lot of people during the pandemic completely reliant on the Postal Service for word from home, for medicine, for vital uh, food and other supplies. Uh, so this is a terrible time to uh, be talking about letting the Postal Service go under. Um, but, you know, there are people using this pandemic for all kinds of policy objectives that they couldn't accomplish in other times. 
you know, some in the private world have always wanted to privatize the Postal Service, but only certain routes, only the lucrative urban and suburban routes, they would more than happy to have the federal government handle the, the unprofitable rural routes uh, and degrade service to rural customers. That that doesn't make sense at all to me, except from a profit motive of, of certain segments of private industry or people in elective office who are beholden to those segments of private industry. Um, but uh, the opportunity to degrade the Postal Service or have the Postal Service fail also serves another GOP objective, and that is to disenfranchise people who vote by mail. Uh, and one of the grave concerns I have about the November election, frankly, which uh, eclipses the concern I have over another round of foreign interference, is the opportunity the pandemic gives those who have been already pushing voter disenfranchisement to take it to a completely new level. You know, for years, it's been Mitch McConnell's business model, his political business model of disenfranchising voters and Kevin McCarthy's as well. Um, the more restrictive voter ID laws and uh, the more polling places closed in urban centers, the more that could be done at the state level to limit the franchise, the better for them politically. That's been their whole calculus. Um, and the president said the secret thing out loud. Uh, which is if more people vote, if more Americans vote, more people eligible to vote actually vote, Republicans can't get elected. Uh, he literally said this, acknowledged this, admitted this. Well, that's a reason for them, them to change their incredibly divisive, xenophobic platform, uh, their destructive platform. It's not a reason to disenfranchise voters. Um, and I think it's vitally important that as we take up and debate new packages to deal with this pandemic that we deal also with the health of our democracy and we make ballots, postage paid ballots available to every American citizen eligible to vote. And likewise, that we have polling stations open um, days or weeks before election day, that we make it easy and safe, that we not force people as the Wisconsin GOP tried to do to choose between their health and their vote. Do you think election protection will be a part of the next stimulus bill? I mean, so far it seemed like, you know, for for better or for worse, they've wanted to really stick to just stimulus itself. Uh, I absolutely. Uh, I think we have to insist uh, that in the next legislation that we take up, we protect the health of the American people, we protect the health of our economy, and we protect the health of our democracy. Uh, so I think we need to fight to make sure that these provisions are part of the, the next big reform package that we take up. Uh, and that will no doubt make it a struggle. Um, but uh, I think the American people have a right uh, not only to be able to vote, but to know where their elected officials stand on the franchise, whether they are willfully trying to obstruct people's ability to vote in this country. Um, and so if the Republicans are determined to disenfranchise people, um, it, it ought to be abundantly clear what they're doing so that they can be held accountable uh, at the polls. Um, and it underscores, uh, you know, the, the central uh, need uh, to make sure that every American is able to vote uh, in November so that we don't see a repetition of so many of the ills we have seen over the last four years. So my last question to you, and it's election related, um, 
If Vice President Biden picks Senator Kamala Harris to be his VP pick, will you toss your hat in the ring for the Senate seat? Uh, well, that will be up to the governor. Um, if there's a vacancy in the Senate, the Governor Newsom will have the opportunity to appoint uh, uh, her successor. Um, and uh, I don't think this is uh, really the, the, the time or place for me to express or not express interest in that. I appreciate the question, but uh, uh, at the moment, uh, I'm going to worry about what's instantly on my plate, and there's a lot on that plate. Uh, in terms of the oversight we talked about in Intel, as well as meeting the very basic needs of my constituents. Uh, so um, I, I have appreciated the speculation uh, on that front uh, over the last uh, several months. Uh, but uh, I think the the vice president um, has got going to have a really difficult choice uh, in picking a running mate because there are a number of excellent candidates, including uh, Senator Harris. Was that a sufficiently politic answer for you? It was pretty politic. Well, maybe you're holding out for attorney general. <laughs> well, you're really not making this easy for me. I mean, this is my job. Again, I want to thank you so much for joining us today, Congressman Schiff, and to our audience for watching and participating live. Please support the Commonwealth Club that does this wonderful work, even when we're all stuck at home. And to watch more programs or support them, please visit commonwealthclub.org slash online. I'm Claire Jeffrey, editor of Mother Jones. Thank you to Congressman Schiff, and thank you to our viewers. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.